Welcome to another edition of We Need to Talk About Movies. Brought to you by Banterflix.com. And now, here's your host, Jim McClain. Hello, hello, hello. I'm your host, Jim McLean. Welcome to the latest episode of We Need to Talk About Movies. Hot on the heels of last week's discussion on cinemas reopening, we're getting back to basics, listeners. We're going to be talking about movies. We're going to be looking at a cult classic this week. We're going to be discussing One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And joining me as we chat about this movie and I'm sure many other things in what is increasingly becoming therapy sessions for me is Gav Logan from Fright Club and I. I got it right this time, Gav. I got it right. Our listeners can't see our other contributor and neither can I, but that's because she is an international woman of mystery. Yes, listeners, it's Banterflix's very own Victoria Double O'Brien. Hello to you, Victoria. Hello, Jim. See, do you like that? I I thought I would move things up, Victoria. You're not just an author to us anymore. (laughs) You're an international woman of mystery. What is going on in your life in the world of espionage that may or may not look like working in retail? What is going on with you, Victoria? Deep, deep undercover. I can't give much away. I know, that's what I thought. I, I, I am starting to have severe suspicions because any times I, I discuss, we'll do, we'll do a recording over Zoom. She's like, yeah, but I'm not showing my face. Listeners, that's <laughs> literally the first thing. I'm not showing my face. I don't want to blow my cover. But anyway, let's not dwell on that. Gav, this is the first time we've had you on the podcast. I know hey, we had yep. you on our Instagram live one mm-hmm. of the last ones before we kind of decided to let them go away for a while. So just for our listeners who might not know, tell us a little bit about Fright Club NI. So the Fright Club NI is a horror film fan club based in Ballymena in County Antrim. And we work in partnership with the Braid Film Theatre to put on horror screenings at our local community theatre. Uh, we haven't been able to do that since March. So we've just been working on our online presence and trying to do other some other cool things really since the lockdown, like some watch parties and certain other things. And we've just launched um, our a new series on IGTV, which started last night called Monday Night Fright. So we'll be starting to do some more videos uh, talking about horror films. So that's really what we're doing at the minute. That's That sounds all sounds great. You know, you're talking to the converted here. I'm someone who loves the horror genre. And I know you guys do the watch parties. I think it's on the Thursday night. You used to do it about 8 o'clock. It used to be 8 o'clock, but um, we've now changed it to 9, 9 p.m. every Thursday. Um, this will be our 16th in a row. So we've been doing pretty well with it and we're getting a good response. So we'll keep it going for another few weeks anyway. Okay, so what are you discussing? What are you going to be watching this week? What's up for discussion in so, the poll? And yeah, so, have you even thought of what's going to be in the next couple that you're going to do the next few weeks? We have the next three weeks and I'm not going to tell you about the next two, but this week hey. <laughs> you'll have to just watch the Twitter and, and check out the polls every Friday. But this week we're doing a Giallo special oh, and we've got a couple of uh, Dario Argento on there and um, a couple of other, the Babas are on there too. So okay. you can follow us on Twitter at Fight Club NI and you can check out the poll on our pinned tweet. What's currently right now as we record on Tuesday? What's oh, this is the point where I put my Gav under pressure and he has to check his Twitter face. It's- it's one of the Argentos. I think it's, um, uh, what is it? Deep Red is winning. Great choice. Deep Red is, it's it's running away with it, to be honest with you. So happy enough to watch that if, if that wins it. Um, That's okay. That's but you, you always get one sort of that comes creeps up at the end that sort of challenges. So it's always interesting. 
we've we've done the old polls. I remember we did a John Carpenter poll uh, for a screening, mm-hmm. and we kind of I think it was like we decided to do we wanted to do a poll to show like the most over like an overlooked Carpenter film because everyone always shows Halloween. Yeah, they always show the thing, and we kind of went with was it uh, Christine uh, Prince of Darkness in the Mouth of Madness, and there was one more I can't remember what it was. And Christine was romping it until three days before it, and just the last minute it was In the Mouth of Madness, which I love, which wow, is okay. a really over, overlooked John Carpenter film. Yeah. But uh, I was surprised that it won our poll. But anyway, that's us talking about horror. And Double O Brown does like her horror. You know, we used to call her our Disney queen, but you like your horror, Victoria, don't you? I do. I'm, like, I'm currently wearing my Halloween t-shirt as we speak. There we go. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't. We can't see it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Amazon Prime. I've got a lot of old horror films on their feed, which I'm kind of glad. So I've recently watched The Tingler for the first time mm-hmm. and okay. Carnival of Souls, which I just oh, love. Brilliant movie. Brilliant. Oh, ha- have either of you taken the plunge and signed up for Shudder yet? I, I, yeah, I have yet. I've been using Shudder for about six months. <laughs> yeah, I've I've been impressed with Shudder. You know, I think it was something I was a bit reluctant to kind of subscribe to at first because a lot of the horror stuff that was there, the classic horror was stuff I had, mm-hmm, but yeah. uh, there's some new gems that are there. Um, the likes of Revenge, which I think is fantastic. I don't know if you've seen it, Gav, or a film I just bang the drum for anytime I get the opportunity. The Tigers Are Not Afraid by Issa Lopez. Oh, great. Yeah, I just watched that a few months ago, actually. It's a fantastic film. Yeah, yeah it's, it's absolutely superb. So... Uh, you you should take the plunge, Victoria. I I think there's two ways you can subscribe. I think if you go through Shutter TV directly, I think it's only a seven day trial. But I think if you go mm-hmm. through Amazon, it's actually a thirty day trial, yeah. which is oh okay, which is good. But uh, you know, beyond horror, let's not kind of descend too much into all talking <clears throat> about horror because otherwise that'll take up the the glut of this <laughs> podcast. Victoria, you know what else has been going on that you can tell us about without blowing your cover? Well, not a lot, if I'm honest. I binge-watched Catherine the Great a couple of days ago. It's bloody brilliant. Like, Ellie Fanning is just spectacular. Uh, what else have I been doing? I've been on the BFI archives a lot. I've hopefully got a PhD project lined up, so I've been doing a lot of research for that as well. Okay. Anything you want to divulge at this stage? You know, Gav won't tell us what he's going to be putting out for his Twitter <laughs> poll in a couple of weeks. Are you going to tell us at least what you're going to be potentially looking for your PhD? Hopefully it'll be focusing on the collaboration between Anthony Asquith, Anatole de Gromwald and Terence Radigan. As much as I like the idea of the auteur, like the artist, it completely ignores the fact that film's collaborative. So mm-hmm. it'll be good to get in deep with that, I think. Well, you could always then mention Steven Soderbergh as well and talk about it being a collaborative project because, you know, you know, he just does everything under a different alias. That's the way he works. He's, he is the complete one-stop shop filmmaker. Uh, oh, stuff, Gav, anything else going on with yourself beyond the world of horror, beyond the world of Fright Club and I? How are you finding things? I, don't, I suppose we can't really say anymore. We're in lockdown and it's not even a not quite lockdown. We're kind of easing our way out of lockdown at a snail's pace, but... How have things been for you? How are you kind of getting on at the minute? Anything exciting going on in the world of Palomina? Um, Not really. <laughs> I started back to work about six weeks ago, and I've just been just been cracking on with work and, and doing some behind the scenes with the Fright Club. But um, other than that, I've just been keeping my head down and you know watching some movies and just getting back to, to normal as, as best I can. 
Mm. I'll ask you this both. Have either of you, just following on from last week's podcast, have any of you yet ventured out to an actual cinema? Not yet. No, I haven't either. And I don't, to be honest, I probably won't won't do that for another month or two just to see mm-hmm. how things go. Mm. Is that kind of health-wise, kind of just being precautious-wise, or just kind of what's what's there at the minute? Or is it a mixture of all three of those things, Gav? Um, for me, it's a bit of a mixture. I'm... I would like to sort of. I'd, I'd like to be a bit more cautious when it comes to mm. this whole thing that's happening at the minute. Um, there's nothing really out there anyway that's, you know, calling me into the cinemas. I'm quite happy just to hang on and, and wait to see see how things go. While me, on the other hand, I've been three times. <laughs> I've, I've, you know what? I've been three times, and I was. I'm surprised. I'm sitting here. What uh, about ten days after the cinemas have reopened? That I've I, that I'm saying I've been three times. Uh, I've made a rule. One was just to show support to the Strand, and I want to get back to the Strand again because mm-hmm. we work closely with them. I know Joanna, Mimi, and Richard and Linda there, and it was great to see that venue reopening. And they had the Lost Boys, so why not? You know what we were talking about that. Oh on, yeah, that's right, yeah. One of our recent podcasts. You know why not go see the Lost Boys? But uh, I was surprised that I found myself going to the Omniplex twice. Once to see Onward, Disney Pixar. You know Victoria, she's masquerading here as a horror fan, but she is our resident Disney queen <laughs> as well. But uh, I decided to go see Onward just because I didn't want it to be the first time I saw a Pixar film. I didn't want it to be for the first time watching something on Disney Plus, which I know it's just a really silly mm-hmm. thing to say. I don't have an issue with it. And the last time was just, it was a miserable evening. I don't know what it's like for where you guys are, where we're recording tonight, but it's a pretty miserable, dreary evening. Yeah. And my lovely wife and I just decided, let's go see Stage Mother. And I'll talk about it at the end when we kind of talk in generally to any right. other business. But um, I'll be honest, I know what we talked about this with Al Mieben. I felt safe when I was there. It felt odd. It felt weird. But um, once, it, once it's there and it's on and the lights go down and you're looking at the big screen, you forget about everything. And to be honest, none of the screenings I've been at have been busy, busy. You know, there's social distance in place, mm-hmm. plus it's not overly busy. But I'll probably send this up, maybe go before the end of the week. Um, I know the QFT is going to be reopened this week. I'm I'm excited to see it back, but the new programme, I've seen St. Francis, and we'll talk about that near the end of the show, Victoria, because you and I both said, I don't know if through hopefully legal methods, Gav, you've seen, <laughs> if you've seen or if you haven't seen St. Francis, but I know I haven't. <laughs> um, Parasite Black and White. I know Al Mieben last week was kind of going on a lot about that and how excited he was about seeing that on the big screen. It's not grabbing me to rush out to the QFT, but I am definitely looking forward to my first time back. But that's enough of me rambling. Victoria, you haven't been to the cinema yet. On the back of what I asked Gavin, you know, is this a case of health reasons not getting to the cinema, not kind of getting the time, or just being a bit cautious, or just nothing right now being there that's going to grab you to get you to get out? to the big screen? Look, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat as Gav, if I'm honest. It's partly because I don't want to risk my health anymore because I've been a key worker from the start of this. So I'm just trying to be as careful as I can. And because I don't have a car, there's nowhere really near me that's open because mm. the audience still shut and I have to wait for the QFT for another few days. I'll ask you this both. And I know we kind of touched on this last week. You know, is Tenant going to be the film that would get you to go out? You know, would that be the thing, Gav, sitting here right now, if, if Tenant was there and playing at your local, I'm assuming you have a local Omniplex, a local IMC mm-hmm. up in Balamina direction. You know, would that, yeah, that be the thing you would say, right, yeah, I'll, I'll go see that on the big screen? Yeah, that'll probably be the first one I'll go. 
go to, to be honest. Um, I've seen pretty much all of Nolan's films on the big screen, and it's it's coming. It is coming in at the end of the month. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, by the time this podcast is edited and out, it could have changed. That's the way the world's going. Yeah, it's been changing. Yeah, it's been changing so much. So um, I haven't been kind of holding my breath on it. But yeah, that'll probably be the first one that I go out to. Yeah. Um, at the minute, the plan is from memory from last week's podcast. It is released in Europe at the end of August. And then two weeks later, it will be given a release in America where it is deemed safe. And I'm surprised that Warner Brothers have done this. Not that, I mean, I'm not delighted to see that it's definitely going to the big screen, but I think this phased release will give way to piracy, which will hurt oh, the film in shape or form. But that's just me. Um, same question to you, Victoria. Is Tenet the one you, you think will probably be your first trip to the cinema? Um, onwards, probably going to be my first one, just if I can find a way out to an Omniplex somewhere. But yeah, I'll definitely be going to see Tenant. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Good. I would definitely recommend Onward. I'll, I'll talk about it at the end in any other business section. But uh, I liked it. It's not an outstanding Pixar film. But yeah, like Disney and Pixar are great at. They break your heart and then put it back together. Mm. But yeah. uh, anyway, that's enough of part one. Let's move on to part two and discuss this week's cult classic. Okay, guys, so we're going to be talking about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Gav, as you're making your podcast debut, I said to you last week, you know, pick the film you want to chat about. So you picked this. Tell our listeners, well, not to talk too much about the specifics of the film itself, Mm -hmm. but just tell us why you wanted to discuss this film on the podcast. First and foremost, it's it's 45 years since it's been released. So it's a bit of an anniversary. And also um, Netflix just announced the the dates for the TV show Ratched, which is based on Nurse Ratched's earlier sort of career. And I just thought it would be nice to talk about the movie that I think is the greatest film ever made. Okay. I don't know about you two, but it's it's the greatest film ever made in my in my mind. It's kind of hard for me to actually talk about it without everything I, I say sounding like hyperbole because it means that much to me. <laughs> so this will be a fun a fun chat. Um, I changed my life in, in many ways, so I'm quite uh quite excited just to have a a chat about it and talk about the performances and different things that kind of had an impact on on me okay so that's great stuff i'm looking forward to discussing the film with you gav and you of course victoria as you are the old hat at this now before we get into discussing too much about the film and listeners there will be spoilers but the film has been around for quite some time and if you've seen the simpsons anyway it's going to be pretty much spoiled for you i'll come back to that i'm sure but just for our listeners Tell us, what is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest all about? Well, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest follows Randall McMurphy, our beloved Jack Nicholson, as he is committed to an, what's essentially in a, in, is it a mental hospital, I believe? Yeah, because yeah. it's not an asylum. Um, he starts out as pretty sane. He's feigned mental illness to guard of prison, and it's basically an exploration of what psychiatry was like in the 1960s, how mental health was handled, a lot of counterculture elements to it. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, all good stuff. So I think with that, before we get into discussing the film, let's have a clip. Mr. Harding, you've stated on more than one occasion that you suspected your wife of seeing other men. Oh, yes. Yes, very much. I suspect her. I suspect her. Well, maybe you can tell us why you suspect her. Oh, 
Well, I can only speculate as to the reasons why. Have you ever speculated, Mr. Harding, that perhaps you are impatient with your wife because she doesn't meet your mental requirements? Perhaps, but you see, the only thing I can really speculate on, Nurse Ratchet, is the very existence of my life with or without my wife in, in, in terms of the human relationships, the juxtaposition of one person to another, the form and the content. All right, why don't you knock off the bullshit and get to the point? So that's a clip of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Gav, you've kind of put your cards all out on the table. You've kind of told us already, there's no point in me asking you, what do you think about the film? When you've already said it's possibly the best film ever. So mm -hmm. what is it about this film that means so much to you? I first saw the film when I was a small child. I remember watching it with my father and I didn't obviously understand it. I was about 10 years old. I just remember him laughing and enjoying it. So I kind of just mimicked him and enjoyed mm -hmm enjoyed it with him and then I think I watched it during my teens on TV once or twice maybe catching bits here and bits there but it was actually the first DVD that I ever bought when I was about 20 or 21 maybe it was what it was the old DVDs you know that had the wee latch mm -hmm. that you had to you had to open them was this and one of the DVDs by the way because but did you have to switch it over was it one of, was it that old yes. with the DVD yeah you did oh. it, was, it was the weird one yeah it was just to clear sort of but yeah so I remember watching it uh, with no distractions from start to finish and it blew me away like it was it made me cry mm. it made me uh just so full of joy and it really helped me to understand and appreciate the art of filmmaking before this i was a fan of movies but when i watched this film i became a fan of film and cinema and i know that sounds a wee bit sort of cheesy but um it is true and i really when i watched this film i really kind of under started to understand that the art behind acting and directing and the, the writing of the script and I started to delve a bit deeper into to films then after that and uh, because I wanted to to know more about them and this was really the first film that kind of steered me into that path. After watching this film then I went and watched loads of Jack Nicholson films like mm -hmm. the, uh, Chinatown and The Last Detail and others, other movies from that era, you know the 70s mm -hmm. like The Conversation and Marathon Man and Taxi Driver and Dog Day Afternoon and all these classic movies and, and that just opened a completely new world to me and I haven't really been the same since. So yeah. it was a very important film for me, especially at this time of my life, because I was, I was struggling with a few things and exploring the world of cinema uh, really helped me to kind of steer me in the right path. So it's a very important film for me. Yeah, well, as I think it's, isn't it Roger Ebert says that cinema's uh, empathy generator, that's what it's, it's best at. And I yeah, would definitely, definitely agree is. with you. I, I couldn't tell you the first time I watched this. I know like you my father absolutely adores this film mm -hmm. and there's scenes that you know well we've said that there will be spoilers there's a scene in this film involving juicy fruit that oh. reduces my father just to kind of just hoard, like the, the biggest laughs i've ever heard from that that and yeah. you know i suppose we may as well mention on this podcast you know pay respects to the late great alan parker with the mm -hmm. commitments you know that was another film that my father just absolutely adored and, and that's but in that scene particularly in one flew over the cookies nest with the juicy fruit with uh, jack nicholson's character mm -hmm. and the chief and yeah. it's it's just perfection it is perfection and 
I know my father always found a lot of it funny. I think as I get older, I find, whilst there is undoubtedly humorous moments in the film, I do find it, it touches me more. And it's actually a film, and I know on Instagram, one of uh, one of my friends, Barry, mentioned, and we've discussed this before, it's, it's one of those few films that actually really gets me really angry at times. And you find yourself, every time I watch, even I re-watched this last night with my lovely wife and watching it, even though, God, this could have been the 15th, you know, 20th, God knows how many times I've watched it. You know, you still find yourself getting so angry at it. Yeah. And I want to come back to, because I have issues with the fact that they're making a nurse ratchet prequel series. Okay, yeah. Because, well, I'll hold back on that just for now. But, you know, I will say this. I mean, it's Milas Foreman directing this. I absolutely adore it. And it's, when you look at it, it's got such an impressive cast. You know, when you look there, I think it's Christopher Lloyd's feature debut, mm -hmm. Danny DeVito, you have, of course, Michael, no, you don't have Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas is producing it. Producer, you have Jack yeah. Nicholson, Louise Fletcher, uh, Will Sampson, Michael Perryman's in there as well. And, yeah. Roger. Uh, yeah, and the guy from The Shining as well. Scatman uh, Brothers. Yes. Oh, yeah, he's great. Oh, yeah. He's, he's fantastic, isn't it? And you've got, and apologies, listeners, I can never say his surname, but you've got Brad Dourif. Dourif? I can Brad never Durif, say. Yeah. Dourif, yeah. Who's just a character, if ever there was, if ever it was possible, I would just love to throw my arms around and just give that guy a hug. But we'll come back to this. <laughs> but sure. before we come back to the specifics of certain scenes and film, what's your thoughts, Victoria? I'll be honest, this is the first time I've actually watched it from start to finish. Again, right. it seems to be, a, there's a running theme here with dads and liking this film, because my dad loves this film. Mm -hmm. Like, I remember as a kid, it was always the group therapy <coughs> things that I remember my dad watching. But mm -hmm. he was so engaged, and he'd be like, oh, wait, see this, wait, see this. But, and he knew I liked Back to the Future, so every time Christopher Lloyd's character came on, I was like, oh, do you know who that is? <laughs> I f did, he, did he kind of, every time Christopher Lloyd's on, on, on camera, did he kind of just look at you and go, great Scott? <laughs> no? I wish he had, that would have been... <laughs> brilliant if you knew him mm. um but i this is the first time i've actually sat down on my own and watched it from start to finish okay but i'll be honest I, I fucking hate jack nicholson and i'm so Ooh. i'm so sorry to say that that's like now so can i can i just push you just to kind of clarify on this you hate jack nicholson as an actor or you hate jack nicholson in this i like him in this i hate okay. jack nicholson in general it's a hard thing for me to reconcile with because Batman, Tim Burton's Batman, is one of my favourite films ever and his Joker irritates the life out of me. Well, that's because he's not a real Joker. He's Tim Burton's Joker. <laughs> that's fair. That's, that's, that's your way round that, Victoria. No, I can get it. I think it just seems to be the law. I think there just has to be somewhere. It's like a wee switch somewhere that, you know, if you're a dad, you have to like Jack Nicholson, you know, if, or if you're a dad of a certain age. <laughs> Because I think everybody, you know, kind of, I think it's the fact that that generational thing of growing up with like Easy Rider, this, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. like the one my father loves, isn't it? The Witches of Eastwick. He absolutely oh, yeah, yeah. adores, and I'm not a fan of, of that film. I don't hate it, but I'm not a massive fan of that. A bit like you, Victoria. I've, I've had kind of love and hate relationship with Tim Burton's Batman. I kind of fell away from it in the wake of Nolan's Batmans because it kind of mm -hmm. went like, that's not my Batman. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it was actually for the TV show last year. I went back and rewatched the, the four that preceded it. Okay, let's not talk too much about Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. You know, again, the, the late Joel Schumacher. You know, there's charms to it. I can see, actually, we have a lovely Riddler. Is that just yeah. a face mask or is that... Uh, that's, the, that's actually the... That's Jim Carrey's The Riddler from Batman Forever. It's uh -huh. a, an actual latex face mask that I bought off Brilliant. eBay two years ago. Brilliant. Brilliant. 
because I and I like that film. I think that's film that's been pulled in too many directions. But um, I actually find myself falling in love again with Tim Burton's Batman. You know, I really actually I never disliked Batman Returns, but it was just always that's Tim Burton's Batman, and the way like you have like that's Frank Miller's Batman, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But um, no, I, I can get what you're saying. I do have to disagree. I, I love Jack Nicholson as an on-screen presence, you know. It's hilarious I, I don't like admitting that. That's okay. You know, I'm not going to say anything ill because, you know, you're a, a secret agent. You know, you could just kind of uh, come in at any time and just make it look like I had a nasty trip in the shower. But uh, <laughs> you don't like Jack Nicholson generally. So what was it about this that made you like him or like his performance in this like I've, I've read half of the book i borrowed it off a friend and had to give it back to her because i bend the spines of books so i don't like borrowing off friends so i had to be like i'm sorry i'll wreck this book on you if i keep reading it but the book is all told from the chief's point of view which is strange so you don't actually you, you get his interpretation of what mcmurphy's like you don't get to see like mcmurphy's point of view it's very strange mm-hmm. but i think the story was more i think the story's stronger bringing in us with him I know that he was in prison for assault and rape, and it was hard for me to wrap my head around the rape thing. It yeah. was, I actually forgot that was in it. It was, it really bothered me. But if I was able to ignore that, the rest of his performance was outstanding. Mm-hmm. Irritatingly outstanding, because I don't like him, but it's brilliant. It's just, you can understand why people love his character in this. Is, is it enough to make you go back and reevaluate Jack Nicholson's on-screen career? No. <laughs> don't think so. <laughs> Didn't, didn't think so because you mentioned there about the book because the author Ken Casey was Ken not Casey. a fan mm. of the of the film. He didn't like it at all. He didn't like the fact I that the narrative it. had the focus on the narrative had changed. Now I think if you hadn't have done that, you, I come back to that juicy fruit sequence. Mm-hmm. You, you wouldn't <laughs> have the comedic payoff with that sequence at all. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't. I, I can see why they've done it. Now I don't know if either of you have. So I'm going to guess, Victoria, you haven't. I don't know, Gav, with you, you mean, if either of you have seen the stage play of this? Because it was kind no. of, it was, no. you know, Ryan, it was Kirk Douglas was originally um, playing Jack Nicholson's character. And then, you know, he got the rights to make it into a film. He was, by the time they'd finally found a filmmaker, he was too old. He passed it over to Michael, Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas brought Jack Nicholson on board. And the rest of it is history. But it started life as a stage play. And I'm not sure, have I not seen it? whether the focus on the stage play is from Jack Nicholson's character or it's still from, isn't it Chief Broden or Bromden? Um, from his Chief ca- Bromden, yeah. I don't know if it's from his character's point of view in the stage play. I- I'm not certain. I haven't seen it. So I don't think you said you hadn't seen it either, Gav. I haven't seen it, no. And uh, to be honest, I haven't read much about it. So I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know from what perspective it comes from. I would imagine it would be more like the film, but I, could be wrong there. I'm some, yeah. sure somebody will correct us on that. Oh, I'm sure someone will. I'm sure someone will go out of their way to kind of, you know, in Northern Ireland people go out of their way to get objective, <laughs> uh, to object yes, to things. So I'm sure they will get outraged by this if we don't need I'm sorry, we weren't around when it was on the stage. And I think it was only, uh, I think for a while it was on in London. I think it was Alex Kingston and uh, Christian Slater, I think, were in yeah, that's the, right, yeah. the, the West End production for a while, which I didn't think got great reviews but it could be wrong but i would imagine that the as you say gav i would imagine that it makes sense for a stage play for the focus to be on jack nicholson's character because i don't think it's an idea of when you adapt something it's like you know stephen king didn't like the uh, adaptation of the shining you know 
I don't know, Gav, I know you're a, I know you're a Stephen King fan. I think I am, yeah, yeah. So I don't know where you'll come down on this, but you know, I think Kubrick did something with a really good book from Stephen King, but I think he did something quite clever with it and made it his own, which is what I think a good you know director and screenwriter mm-hmm. should do. They should look at something. It might work on the page, but it won't work on screen. And I think it's a yeah. it's a good choice. And I, as I say, without it, you don't get one of the greatest comedic payoffs. And no, I, w- I wouldn't. I don't think the film would have worked had it been from Chief's perspective, as you said, because of certain things that happened. And you needed Jack Nicholson to really be that shining light through the film to for us to care about that character. And um, as you said, like Ken Kesey, was, he was on board at the start of the film um, as an ex- executive producer or whatever, and he just left because he didn't like the direction of the film. But, you know, he was the original author, so you can't really say much about that. He, he's entitled to his opinion. Um, but it definitely wouldn't have worked had it been like the novel. I read the novel about 10 years ago, and... I did enjoy it, but the movie is way better in my eyes anyway. So what is it about for you that makes the the film such a superior product in its own right compared to the book? I love Jack Nicholson. Uh, sorry, Victoria. But this is easily one of his best performances ever and probably one of the greatest male performances in any films ever. I know he won the Oscar for it and I know the, the film picked up the big five Oscars in 1976. But He's fantastic. Louise Fletcher is fantastic. The cast, all the extra cast are fantastic. Like there's some there's some characters that don't even have lines of dialogue. Yeah. But you just want to know their story and you want to look at them and you want to you want them to tell their story somehow because they just light up the screen. I mean, even the guy that dances in the background, you don't even know anything about him, but I, yeah. I want to know more about him. And that's the magic of this film. And there's so many memorable lines. And there's so many, many uh, memorable scenes. I mean, we'll probably talk about the scenes now, but there's at least four or five scenes that I think is some of the best scenes in cinema history. But definitely the driving force is Jack Nicholson's performance. I, I think, yeah, I would agree. I think the driving force is Jack Nicholson's character, but I think it's weird for a character that I hate and despise and a character <laughs> that, you know, we're talking at the start of this podcast about horror. Louise Fletcher's... Nurse Ratchet genuinely scares me. She genuinely scares me. But I think it's it's a complicated. She's she is a complicated character because the terrifying thing about Nurse Ratchet is she thinks she's doing good. She thinks that yep. she that you know she you know it's the mother knows best mentality. I think the only time that facade drops is in the film's closing moments with the character mm-hmm. of Billy. I think there is when you see that there is a character that is, whether you like her or not, she thinks she's got these people's best intentions at her heart, but it's only in the film's closing moment then you realise you think that someone's a bit of a bitch and then you go, no, actually, you are actually a horrible person. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. why I think, you know, I know it seems silly. She scares me more than a Michael Myers, than a Jason Voorhees, a Freddy Krueger, anything like that. Maybe not Hannibal Lecter. She's not quite up to that level. <laughs> But she terrifies me. And what you get is the fact that sense that she sees herself as the the point of authority and the point of order within this this ward. And you see Jack Nicholson's character. You know, I, I don't want, I was thinking about this kind of before we started to record and it's a crude analogy and it's coming back to Batman again. It's a bit like Heath Ledger's Joker in The Dark Knight. Yep. You know, Nicholson's character is an agent of chaos and that's what it is. You know, he will fight her over everything. He will question her. He wants his way. He wants things and it's just every little thing he's prepared to kind of wreak havoc. And whereas the other gentlemen in this ward have have learnt over time 
because Ratchet is so good at being able to push their buttons. She knows what makes them happy. She knows what makes them sad. She knows how to manipulate that. And they never question her. So I think mm-hmm. it's like even in like the first night he's there, whenever they're just given the pills, he, he's only, everyone is like, yeah, boom, 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 pills. Like, what is this? I don't need this. What's this for? It's to help. I think it's to help them sleep or something along that lines. Yeah. And from there, right from there, you know, all these small little hurdles, he's prepared to kind of go, wants to watch on TV, wants music turned down. He, he just is prepared to fight her on everything. And it's just two people from polar opposite point of views, completely button heads. Um, what about you, Victoria? Because I know like, We've, we've talked anytime we have you on the podcast, you know, mental health seems to be an issue you and I particularly seem to discuss quite a bit. And it's very much front and centre in this film. And, you know, what's your thoughts on a character like Nurse Ratchet? I'm the same as you. She terrifies the life out of me. And it's because, like, she's not outwardly frightening. She, like you said, she's not like Michael Myers. She's She is this point of authority that you aren't supposed to question. And outwardly, she looks so normal. But she's so manipulative and she's so cruel. And like you said, she thinks she's doing the right thing. But she's not. Do both of you see her as a villain? I mean, do you think she... see her as a villain or do you see her as a product of the system? I know she's there to represent the system. But do you see it as her as being the villain or the system that she represents? Or is it a little bit of both? Personally, I think she's she's more... She's become a villain through the system. And we'll obviously see more of that from the... The prequel that's coming out on Netflix, and maybe mm. they'll address that, or they will definitely address it. Uh, but from watching the film, if you didn't know anything about the prequel coming, you would just think that she's just kind of been a product of the system. She's not a villain. She's not a true villain. She's but the best monsters and the best villains are ones, as you say, Jim, who think they're doing mm. doing the best for for everyone. I mean, even you know the likes of the the Joker or somebody like Thanos who. And the Avengers won it, obviously. I was, to, mm. you know, he wanted to eradicate mankind to a certain extent. Um, As I said on a previous podcast, or even on the TV show, Al Thanos from the MCU, he was just, what was the term I used? A genocidal bono. That's the way it was, right? <laughs> Imagine, you know, he just wanted to end world hunger, universe hunger. But, you know, unlike Bono, who maybe wanted to do another live aid, uh, you know, Thanos just wanted to wipe out half the population. So that's the best way. But no... She's a cop. Watching it yesterday, I kind of, I've always kind of said she's a villain. She's, she's a villain and I hate her and despise her. And I think at the same time, I have to say at the, at the same point, I think Louise Fletcher is amazing as her. I think she's absolutely outstanding. Like you mentioned, Gav, she won an Oscar as well for her performance. I hate her, but I was kind of thinking about, is she in herself a villain? Or is she just someone who's been in the system, has become, you know, I don't want to say indoctrinated, but just has become kind of used to that system. And this is kind of the kind of part of the, another cog in the machine. And she's just kind of carrying on. And it's every time, like particularly last night when I was watching it, I was kind of going, maybe she's not as much of a villain as I remember. And then it's the sequence with Billy at the very end, which I'm sure we'll come to. And it's, no, you are, you're a horrible person. And I was watching the trailer and I'm worried about, the trailer because I didn't know about this at all until you mentioned it Gav and then Victoria before we started recording you showed me the the trailer that has just been posted today when we went to record and I was worried that it was going to try and humanize her quite a lot but I see from watching the trailer I don't know if either of you have seen the trailer it seems to be going the complete opposite direction it's Mm -hmm. made by the people who did American Horror Story which I haven't got massively into I'm about two and a half series into I've never fallen in love with it big time compared to others but it looks like they are just going to make her to be a complete 
villain and a yeah. complete sociopath. And I don't know. It's kind of that thing. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you do. You're damned if you do. I don't know. Like, what do you think? I'm assuming you've seen that trailer for Ratchet. You know, are you kind of sitting here saying she's an outright villain? She's a, a cog in the machine? Or do you think this series is going to go too far and push her into an outright villain? Yeah, that, that's what I'm worried about. It's kind of like the Rob Zombie remake of Halloween. You get way too much of Michael's backstory and it kind of ruins it. Part mm. of what makes him scary is that you don't know much about him. And I think that's what Ratchet the series is going to do to, to Nurse Ratchet. I think they're going to give us way too much detail. There's a bit in the trailer, sorry if you haven't seen the trailer, where it's nurses in training in like an amphitheater and there's a wee cadaver on the bottom and you can see her face and she's mm. just enraptured watching it and it's like you said i think they are going to make her indian out and out villain which i don't want them to do it's a weird one because i don't think she's definitely there's villainous qualities about her i don't think she's an outright villain because that's what's as we keep coming back that's what scares me about her is the fact that she sits there like there's the group meeting where at one point you know it's after jack nicholson's character he steal they they escape they get onto the boat and they go fishing for the day. And when they're when they're eventually brought back, they're gonna say like everybody else in that room says like he is faking this. There's because that's the whole point, you know. He's faking insanity so that he can get out of hard work because he's a lazy bastard. He's a, <laughs> you know, that's basically the 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 short of it. Like he's he's lazy. He wants to be able to kind of sit about and watch TV, watch the baseball, and that's it. And that's what he thinks is going to be a cushy number at the at the asylum. It's not an asylum, it's a medical hospital. He thinks it's going to be a cushy number. And then they all sit and go, all are sitting around this room and they go, he's faking it. He's clearly faking it. We just need to send him back to, to prison. And she's the one. And then when you start to go think, is she, I don't know, is there something about her where she gets, you know, <clears throat> perverse pleasure from it? And the one time, the other time other than the sequence with Billy is there's all the constant votes because she's all about her system. And there's a system about, is it whether they, they get to watch the baseball? Mm-hmm. The very there's an important scene there that kind of really sets her character off is whenever they do that second vote and Max trying to get obviously the ten people to vote mm-hmm. um, for to watch the game and he, he eventually gets the chief to put put his hand up but it's too late the meeting's been adjourned mm-hmm. but it's only been adjourned by about thirty seconds and he's he's raging he's fuming at her and he's shouting and screaming at her and she's just killing him with ki- kindness like she's just she's deadpanned and. Eventually, I mean, one of the greatest scenes in the movie is whenever they start watching the game that isn't actually there mm. and everyone gets excited. But she, she sees a spark in the group that clearly had never been there before. Mm-hmm. So she, it's almost like she's becoming frightened for her position as the authority figure. And that's really the turning point, I think, in the whole film because she, she now sees Mac as being this... Um, she knows that he's sane at this point. Mm. And at that, I think that's the point that the, the, the switch goes off in her head to say I'm going to take this guy down and then that's after that you sort of see what you were saying about the, the fishing scene mm-hmm. and then she decides about him wanting to stay even though she knows and clearly everyone else knows that he's faking it so that but that's the scene I think that kind of is the, the turning point yeah and it's also that scene when you look at the film as well that even the other patients start to question her more Mm-hmm. You know, they go from like when we have the first vote, I think it's only Christopher Lloyd's character, I think, puts his hand up. He doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. He's like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, we know what it is. You know, what do you want for dinner tonight? This, yeah, yeah, yeah go for it. Yeah. And it's the second time because then again, she, she, it's, it's always her, the ball's always in her court. She's always the one that has to be in control. 
you know, mm-hmm. it's made out that it's only the ones that are in the, the group session are voting. And she's like, yeah, he gets nine votes. And she's, well, she, once she realizes she's lost them, she's like, well, you need, you know, more votes from the rest of the people who aren't involved. Mm-hmm. You know, she's, it's, it's someone who likes to be in control. You, you see, like, particularly, again, bringing it back to the character of Billy, before we get to the finale, she knows how to push his buttons. There's all the characters that she knows how to push their buttons in the particular, and you see that in the group sessions is that whenever she wants someone to open up or whenever someone starts to kind of backbite at her or someone starts to disagree with her, she's able to turn it because she's been working with these people. She knows how to flip the switch in them. And every time she does it, you know, again, I come back to the finale, but you know, even before that, you know, there's times it's, it breaks my heart on, you know, the attitudes and the, the treatment of very vulnerable masculinity because it's not a film about you know ultra macho men you know jack nicholson's character yes he might you know appear that way but he is just kind of when you break it down you know at the very end of the film he has the opportunity sorry listeners again but we said there would be spoilers he has the opportunity to leave with the chief mm-hmm. but he decides to stay he's just he's maybe not as broken in the same way as some of the men that are in that hospital but they, they are they are fragile men. They are. I mean, I, I remember uh, one of our contributors a few years ago wrote a piece about Jaws, about the gentle masculinity of Jaws, about the fact that it wasn't macho men in that film, and it's the same here. Mm-hmm. It is not macho men, and it's you know a film that makes me angry about how those vulnerable men are treated. And I was thinking that's why I was mentioning about mental health, Victoria. I was thinking mm-hmm. about uh, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. The film, one of the last podcasts, one we I think one of the last podcasts we were in together, kind of well before lockdown. But you know that was a film we talked about, and we talked about you know Fred Rogers kind of mm-hmm. approach to to treating kind of everybody, not just children but adults as well. That compassion and kindness, and these men are in hospital. They're this is what they're they're there to get better, but they're not being shown compassion. They're not being shown kindness by a woman who who thinks misguidedly that by being a point of authority that she is helping them and that idea of I come back to mother knows best I will dictate to you what you need to do and it comes back to you know again I'm I'm paying respects to everybody tonight the late Jack Charlton when I was uh, at a a Q&A with him many years ago talked about different different strokes for different folks but with a character like Nurse Ratchet it's one one does all one does all that's you know that's my approach for everybody but i don't know it's just your thoughts on that victoria just kind of in relation to kind of this film and what we were talking about previously no i really like what you were saying about the masculinity in this because like you said they're, they're not like macho men they're not lads they are these very vulnerable people and she she takes a complete blanket approach to every single one of them and there's a point in one of the group sessions where she makes it very clear that most of the men there aren't actually committed. They're there voluntarily. <laughs> They're there because they want to be helped. And she's yep. she's not acknowledging them as individuals at all. And like you said, she knows how to push their buttons. She knows if she talks about Harding's wife that he's going to get annoyed. Mm-hmm. If she brings up the cigarettes, Mr. Cheswick's going to get annoyed. She knows how to put them in their place. But that's not what they need. These men need compassion. They need compassion. Because, I mean, as you say, they are not committed. They're there voluntarily. They need help, but it's, it, 
and it was only because I was re-watching it because when I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it reminded me a lot of Girl Interrupted, which is, you know, similar-ish mm-hmm. kind of film, but, you know, very different in other ways. You know, it's much more of a female point of view. Again, a film about fragile women in a place where they're supposedly meant to be getting help. And, you know, there again, you can see the kind of contrast, the comparisons and the contrast and the way that they are treated. Like Whoopi Goldberg in that film in Girl Interrupted, when we are first shown her, when we are first when we first meet her, we assume she's going to be like a Nurse Ratchet-esque character from the way she's portrayed, but she's not. But again, there are still feelings in her, you know, regard. I don't want to go down a, a girl interrupted kind of segue, but uh, I just think it's an interesting companion piece. If uh, any of our listeners, any of you guys have or haven't seen the film, I don't know what you think of that. But if any of our listeners haven't seen Girl Interrupted, I would definitely recommend checking it out if you want to watch it after checking this film. I don't know anyone else want to interject there. I've kind of went off on a traditional Jim McLean trademark ramble. Yeah, everything you said there is spot on about the masculinity. And, and obviously going back to Nurse Ratched being a villain and being a sort of this quiet monster, she clearly, I mean, I have a theory that clearly her uh, origin story is that she's had a lot of run-ins with very manly men mm-hmm. because within that industry that she works in, it's mostly mostly men. Like even when she's at the meeting talking about him, uh, Mac being seen, all the other people are men. They're all the, mm-hmm. all the other doctors are men, and just around that time, you can just imagine that most of the doctors and most of the people in charge mm-hmm. were were men. So she's had to work her way up, and I'm assuming that she's had some really bad experiences with men. Um, throughout her career as a nurse and getting into this position. So they'll probably address that and the fact that she, you know, when she's dealing with these um, these men in, in the ward that, you know, need help and aren't very masculine uh, in the sort of traditional sense, that she is taking advantage of that because she's looking back to her past and saying, well, I'm kind of going to use this moment as a powerful moment to kind of have her own revenge, I suppose. Um, but definitely, you know, it's... Girl Interrupt is a good shout out, and um, there's a lot of other great movies out there that deal with men- mental health. Um, but yeah, that's a good, Girl Interrupt is a good shout out, and um, I definitely agree with the whole sort of masculinity thing that you were speaking about there. Yeah, it's it's just a film. I, when I watched it last night, it's like I really want to rewatch Girl Interrupted, and luckily for me, it's available on Amazon Prime, so I was able to kind of watch it this afternoon. As Victoria said at the start of this podcast, not like we're going anywhere. We're kind of well, I'm working from home still, um, so it's kind of like right, I'll sit and watch this. And you know, on that note, I know I was recently watching. It's not a superb film, but I would recommend seeking it out. The Simon Pegg Lost Trans missions didn't get a cinematic release obviously because of covid it went straight to vod it didn't go premium rental you can buy it or rent it if you wish and that's a film that's dealing with someone someone suffering from schizophrenia i think seven pegs great in that film and again it's all about the feelings of the system and i, I guess i come back to that you know do we see and there's no denying i mean that's kind of the the, the picture that the film is painting is that Nurse Ratchet is a product of the system. So is it Nurse Ratchet is the problem in this scenario, or is it the system? I know I asked this question earlier on, but I suppose I'll just come back to it. I'll start with you, Victoria. It's an interesting question because like the classic interpretation of her is that she's a metaphor for institutionalized like corruption, which I kind of get you see, you see it a lot in politics. Like someone going to politics with good intentions will be a really lovely person, and the deeper they get in, the higher they get up, the more corrupt they get. So it could be something along those lines, but whether or not she is just a villain in her own right or because of the system, it's a really hard thing to to try and wrap your head around. I think. 
Because I know Louise Fletcher, when she talked about acting in the film, she said she always tried to find the human aspects to the character. She didn't want her mm-hmm. to be, you know, dehumanized. She she did yeah. see her very much as someone that had kind of went drunk on par within the scenario. The fact that, coming back to what Gav said, that in a male-dominated workplace, there she was as a woman who was a point of authority and in a position of power around a group of very vulnerable men. You know, I suppose there's no denying that. I know I mentioned Girl Interrupted, you know, Victoria, like anything else you'd give a shout out to for what you'd maybe recommend for further viewing for anybody who wants to watch this. I would say Girl Interrupted. And I know it's not, it seems like a weird connection to make, but I would recommend the Tom Hanks film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, just, you know, for that sense of the, the need for compassion when particularly, you know, I suppose around the topic of, you know, masculinity and mental health that topic that you need compassion on those issues you need to show a certain sense it cannot be a one stroke fits all one everything for everything for one um i'm kind of rambling here but i don't know anything else victoria you'd maybe recommend for further viewing um it's it's not mental health specific but the second season of american horror story asylum because it's it's a very similar story. Sarah Paulson is going to be playing Miss uh, Nurse Ratchet in the series. She plays a journalist who fakes mental illness to get in to go undercover. Mm. And she has first-hand experience. She basically has like Murphy's experience. She has her eyes opened to what it's actually like to be mentally ill in the 60s and how you're treated. Obviously, American Horror Story has a bit of a different plotline because her character is a lesbian, so it's more about conversion therapy. Mm. But if you want to try and understand how much One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest actually opened people's eyes, because it it changed how people looked at psychiatry and mental health. Like it was, it made the establishment very uncomfortable. The book was banned. So I think Asylum would be maybe a good place to start, especially if you do like Sarah Paulson, because it'll be interesting to see her on the other side of the, the coin. She's more yeah. like a, a Jessica Lange character in, in the New Ratted series. I think she she's perfect for the role. Like looking at kind of the, the trailer today, like she looks perfect. My only issue with it is it looks too much like, you know, they, they proclaim in the trailer from the people who brought you American Horror Story. It looks too much like that. And I think mm. that is just pushing that character slightly too far. Yeah, too far. You know, yeah. it's it's kind of like the opposite of like kind of a Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees where those characters become pop culture and they lose their scare factor. I think when you try to make someone too scary, too much yeah. of an outright villain, I think you, you lose them. But that's, again, that's my own humble opinion. I know I've been quite rambling in the pod tonight. Uh, you know, Gav, anything else maybe you'd recommend for further viewing or anything else kind of, as you said at the start of this podcast, this is a film that you adore. Mm-hmm. You know, anything else that you feel we haven't kind of touched on this evening or? I, I just I'd agree with Victoria there about season two of Asylum. That's a great shout out. And I meant to mention that when I was speaking about, uh, speaking about Ratchet at the start there. Just on a, on a very sort of out there note, um, I'll go back to my horror roots here. And uh, an interesting double bill with this would be Dream Warriors, Nightmare on Elm Street. Obviously, yeah. that's, set in a, that's set in a sort of psychiatric ward for kids, and they're having issues with their dreams, with Freddy entering their dreams. But that's very much about kids versus adults and how adults don't really give kids a voice when it mm-hmm. comes to mental health. And, you know, if you, if you watch that movie and kind of push all the kind of Freddy Krueger parts out and study it from that point of view, that's a very interesting film to uh, analyse as well, because... There's kind of a nurse, ra- nurse ratchet kind of nurse in that too, and she's clearly influenced by 
Louise Fletcher's performance, but she she denies everything basically until it's too late, until you know they all start dying, and even when they do die, she thinks it's suicide, and she's completely denying everything. Mm-hmm. And it's just an interesting um, film to watch on, on on how the system kind of treats mental health in younger younger people. Just on that note, the film that popped into my head would be John Carpenter's The Ward. Okay, it's nowhere near on the level of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's yeah. Nest, but it's again it's a film dealing a bit like Girl Interrupted much less successfully than Girl Interrupted did. You know, it's kind of tackling kind of, again, the kind of health health system and the mental health system and how it deals with vulnerable women. You know, again, it's, it is kind of, it is schlocky and it's a charm to it, but it's John Carpenter. So I'll always make an excuse to, to watch a John Carpenter film on this podcast. But no, I, I think it's great. The only thing I know we haven't mentioned is the score. The score is just, wonderful you know watching it last night you know as soon as you hear that opening score is it with like the saw that they make yeah yeah, they they make the music from and it's it just it's it's so bizarre it's a bit like uh hereditary in a way in the fact that the score for hereditary it's for a horror film but it's quite happy and upbeat Mm -hmm. and you know the start of one flew over the cookies nest and even the end you know, it's it's kind of it well understandably at the end, but at the start when you're watching it and you know you've what's gonna happen and what's gonna proceed, it's a strangely, you know, uplifting score. The one thing we haven't mentioned is I mentioned this earlier on briefly in the podcast, how the Simpsons have ruined one flew over the cookies nest. And even last night I kept waiting for oh, I'm waiting for this to happen. No, 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 Jim. That actually that actually happened in The Simpsons. That didn't happen in this film. You know, you didn't get Chief coming back going, I forget what it is to vote for. Vote for Proposition 2-3, whatever it is, can't remember. I think I saw that before I probably saw One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Same here. I, I probably seen that and the mo- and the references to that and probably knew or my dad probably mentioned that it, oh that's from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I could be wrong, because like you said at the start, Gav, my dad absolutely adores this film and would have watched it, you know, if it was on in the good old days, in our day, when you didn't buy DVD or VHS, you just waited for it to be on television. And if it was on, he would have watched it. He would have made, you know, his mission that week or that night that it would be on. So I could be wrong, but I'm nearly certain in when I was thinking about this, you know, I I remember watching it, I think, at the Queen's Film Theatre one of the years when I first came up to university. I've seen it there. For some reason, it was being screened as part of a flashback screening or a retrospective, or it might have been used as a launchpad for discussion. And that bizarre sequence where you go, the Simpsons did this? And you're like, no, 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 Jim, no. They did it, <laughs> and then the Simpsons hired it. Victoria, any other kind of references? Because this is one of those films that is referenced. It's kind of like I mentioned about Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees. They've, it's kind of entered into pop culture. I know my mum would say, you're such a nurse ratchet. When my father was in hospital, you know, after his stroke years ago, I know my father would have said, oh, the nurse there, she's a real nurse ratchet. You know, it has entered into pop culture <laughs> in a sense. So, you know, there's probably people who haven't seen the film, but know everything about it. Even even though it won all the awards and it's entered into pop culture, I still feel like it doesn't quite get, you know, the, the accolades that it deserves amongst sort of the general public, which is a shame. You know, it, it doesn't always appear in the, the top 10. Greatest mm-hmm. list. I think it was number twenty-five or thirty or something in the Guardians Guardians top list recently. I could be wrong. Lefties, that's why they're lefties. That's I why know. Like I know. It, yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, it's. I mean, it's a movie people do enjoy, but it doesn't ever seem to be like that first movie that people say, "Oh, that's the movie, my favorite movie of all time," type thing. But it's, which is a real shame because it's obviously the greatest movie ever made. 
Well, I remember there's uh, a lady that watches our TV show, and I apologize. I have completely forgotten her name. And she goes to Strand Cinema quite regularly. And we were asked to do a little showcase in Strand, and they asked her to come up, and I interviewed her, and we talked about this, that, and other. And she talked about watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at the Strand for the first time when it was on, when it was there. And it was just kind of, it wasn't, I, I could be misremembering this, but I think she said it was just in around the time, I think possibly her husband had passed away or someone close to her had passed away. And, you know, in a weird way, she said that watching that film was like a therapeutic experience for her in that sense and I was I can't remember the specific conversation I think I'm going to say Lorraine apologies Lorraine if you listen to this and I've completely forgotten your name because I know you watch TV show I don't know if you listen to the podcast but it was a lovely conversation when you when you talk to people when they tell you about what how much like what you were saying at the start Gav about how much a film means to you look they're probably the equivalent for for me is something like eternal sunshine and the spotless mind where you want to know every single thing you want to know about every frame of that film and then once you find out about every frame you want to know about every frame that got cut away alternative sequences you just want to know you just it, it becomes an obsession it, there's mm-hmm. no there's no denying it victoria what's your film what's your obsession probably ever scissor hands like any i'm a massive tim burton fan so like I cry every time I watch that film, and it's 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 kind of my one flew over the cookies nest. It's something that means the world to me. Mm. I really thought you'd say a Disney film. Surprisingly <laughs> not. <laughs> that's all. That's okay. It's all good. We're you know. It's I'm not. I'm not belittling your. I'm not belittling or making fun of your. You know, Edward Scissorhands is a great film. There's no denying it. You know, it's Tim Burton at his peak. There's no denying that. But uh, yeah, everybody has that film. Uh, that they're obsessed about, that they just absolutely adore, that means something to them and it means something important to them. And, you know, there's there's not a thing wrong with that. You know, I can't think. Is there anything else you guys want to, just before we kind of move on to part three and kind of wrap up this week's pod, anything else you want to say other than I know Gav's going to say, watch it, watch it, just watch it. I don't care what you're doing, just watch it. No, just um, talk a little bit about maybe just the very end there when obviously the, the tragic scene with, with mm-hmm. Billy. Mm-hmm. I, I, I watched it recently and I was in tears again because it just tears you apart. Brad Dourif's performance as Billy is unreal, especially when he's getting dragged away and he's screaming, no, no, no. And he knows, you know, that he's in that position that Nurse Ratched has clearly had him in before. And mm-hmm. he, he ends up committing suicide and it's a horrible, horrible scene. But the scene whenever our, uh, McMurthy comes back after being lobotomized mm. and the chief hugs him and he sees the two scars and you're just like, oh, it's so, it's so heartbreaking. And then obviously the chief has to, I guess, euthanize him. Um, but at that point, even though he's decided to, to kill him, he's actually sort of setting him free because he knows mm. that Mac, you know, he may as well be dead and he's never going to be free while he's still in the hospital. So he, he says a very poignant line. He says, you're coming with me. I'm taking, mm. I'm taking you with me. And he kills him and then he goes and of course he breaks free and the music plays again and it's just mm. you go from being like kind of really low until being high whenever the chief um finally escapes and it's just such a great ending um, but it's also the fact in that scene as well that we have i don't think it's all the patients but the guys they they, they cheer because kind of they, they they cheer as the chief lead and that's kind of yeah. where it leaves you kind of in a sense that made, that made me cry yeah. Tabor christopher lloyd i think is the first yeah. one he he gets up mm-hmm. and he does a Christopher Lloyd face and he starts tearing and everything else starts tearing. So, yeah. Because I think you take from that that at that moment that while Nurse Ratchet thinks that she's won, that this is the point actually 
she's she's lost. It's yeah. almost, dare I say it, in another classic Jim McLean random kind of segue, it's almost a bit like Braveheart. The ending of Braveheart, you know, where they think that they've won, but they haven't really, because William Wallace gets to shout, freedom, as yeah. he's kind of, you know, cut in half. But anyway, yeah. um, no, I agree. With you. I, I, I didn't realise we hadn't even discussed the ending, because the ending... Last night, no, I didn't cry, which is a, which is a surprise for me, but it did let like leave me on kind of like a lull. And, the, and the, otherwise, it is a happy ending. It's still there's no denying it that when you come when when Nicholson's character comes back, and you think as it, it it arcs it arcs back to that previous scene where I think when he's getting the shock treatment where he's faking it and he's yeah. walking like Frankenstein and then he winks at the chief, yeah. and I think that's what we all kind of hope. And that's what the mm. chief hopes when, as you say, when he goes to him hug, and hugs him. And then when you realize, no, that it's not, the system has has won, basically. And the only thing I will say about the, the death of Billy, watching it last night on the TV, for, for, and I don't know why I have never noticed it before, the blood is a little terrible, if I'm honest. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I noticed that myself, actually. It's, it's, it's not the most realistic blood, but sure, doesn't need to be. I, but I think I'm glad. Yeah, it doesn't need to be. Yeah, I'm actually, when, you know, I park that and say, I'm glad, because I think had that been too realistic, you know, you think of that, if you, you think if that was filmed now, if that was in the Ratchet series, that would be yeah. an ultra-realistic character. And yeah. that's not what that character deserved. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible way to go to find, you know, that, you know, for any listeners who haven't seen it, sorry, we're going to spoil, so... You know Nicholson's character. He he brings in two prostitutes. Well, I think it's two two girlfriends. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't know if they're prostitutes or not. Or it's never mm. kind of quite revealed. One of them yeah. his his love interest. They're gonna go, and then he says no. You know Billy needs he needs you know to be a be around a woman, and he's taking quite a shine to this girl. So they go. They get drunk, they fall asleep, and then the next morning, Ratchet discovers them, and she just kind of dehumanizes his character in front of the group of in front of the group of men, and that is the point. I said this early on. That's the point for me when the facade drops. That's when she is a villain. There's no denying it because she knows how to push his buttons. Because Billy stands up to her. He kind of says, "No, I'm not yeah. going to do this. I'm not going to do that." And she knows, like that. Mention your mother. Oh. You know, I'm close friends to your mother. I wouldn't want to have to tell her, you know, what's going on here. And he immediately goes back to this fragile, stuttering young boy. And this this boy in, in, in a man's body. And he then is put into her kind of the sister's bay. And, you know, he's he, he commits suicide. And it's horrible. And even as the scene when Nicholson's character is getting set upon by the other orderlies, because, you know, he nearly strangles her. He tries to kill her. But even when she sees him getting, I could be getting my scenes wrong here, but there is a sequence where I think where he's getting, he's getting a bit of a kick in, and you just see her smiling. I'm nearly, it could be the end, or it might be earlier on, just before he goes for the shock treatment. Yeah. I think but, that might be earlier on you're talking about, but yeah, I do. But, I do but you just that. see that smile on her face, and you go, you know what, you're just mm, enjoying you're this nice, too much. Yeah, you're not a nice one. You wouldn't want around for dinner, but that's. That's more like you wouldn't want her but, to be. You wouldn't want her looking after you in COVID anyway. No, the, the line she says to Billy actually after that scene is, she in front of everyone she says, "Are you not ashamed?" Mm. Yeah. And just the reaction 
like Billy's like, no, no. And then she says it again. She mentions the mother. And as you said, he just sort of falls into this little boy mm-hmm. uh, facade again. He starts stuttering again. And it's so horrible to watch. And it's, it's such heartbreaking. A yeah, it's really heartbreaking. Um, fantastic performance. Yeah. Um, and very sad, very sad scene. Yeah, it's, it's a scene that, as I say, always leaves me angry. Angry. It, it really, there's no other way of putting it. And these are people that you know people like nurse ratchet are they're they're put there with the intention of looking after people and the hope that they have the best intentions and the hope that they will care for these people but yeah as i say the whole way through the film it's like is she the villain or is she the product that's the only time i know i'm repeating myself at nauseum here that is the only time really where the facade drops and you go no you are a villain there's no way denying it victoria anything just kind of before we move on and wrap up with part three anything you want to say about the film other than your love for jack nicholson and how much you love it (laughs) and how you're going to go and watch you know all of his other films and reevaluate them well aside from that um my friend sean from work hi sean if you're listening hi sean he wanted to know apart from mcmurphy who do we think's the most iconic character out of the whole cast because i I would say that billy's my favorite but i would have to say the chief for that for that question yeah I would agree with you in terms of uh, being iconic, the chief, for sure, because just of his look, of his size, his height, and him with the brush as well. Um, mm-hmm. I would say, he, I would say he's, he's the most iconic, although oh, they're, all, they're all so good. Like, they all have their little sort of nuances, and they, they're all mm-hmm. different. And, like, I love they're Cheswick. They're individuals, aren't they? They're yeah, fantastic. I mean, exactly. I mean, I love Mr. Cheswick when, it, you know, the way his face just drops and he... He when he has his little tantrums and he, he that scene where he complains about cigarettes that's just yeah. that's oh, iconic. My heart. I know. I mean, he's brilliant. And even even mm-hmm. someone like Scanlon, who you don't, who he's only got one line of dialogue. That's the guy with the big beard. He's mm-hmm. only got one mm-hmm. line of dialogue. But there's a scene after the party where they have the girls around where he's wearing Nurse Ratched's little hat, and it's just, it's just brilliant. <laughs> it's just brilliant, and he's just standing there. But it's it's fantastic, and like all the characters in it for me are are iconic, and it would be impossible for me to pick my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, outside of outside of Mac, but yeah, probably the chief. I would say I would agree with both of you. I think the chief, just because in the way he's entered into pop culture, mm-hmm. there's no doubt. I mean, he's yeah. he's entered, you know, again, probably largely due to the Simpsons, but <laughs> he he has entered entered into pop culture in his his own right, uh, without a doubt. And the last thing I don't think we've mentioned at all, you know, Danny DeVito's greatness as well, because I think he played <laughs> in the. He played. He's in the stage play as well, and that's why he got the role. Um, oh, wow. He he's great in this. I didn't recognise him the first time I saw it with a big over kind of like almost monobrow. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But I love him. I love him when he's sh- when at the start when uh, McMurphy shows him the cards and just this, <laughs> just the smile. <laughs> it's starts falling. Yeah, just the innocent. It's just an innocent wee smile. Yeah. I think um, Harding's a great character too. We haven't actually mentioned him at all. Very underappreciated. I, I really liked him. Yeah, he's because he's out of them all, he's probably the most seeing, and if you know what I mean, like in terms mm-hmm. of like being able to hold conversations, and mm-hmm. and um, he hasn't been committed either. I mean, he's just there because his wife's had an affair, or he thinks she's yeah. having an affair, and that whole sort of weird thing. But when he starts losing losing the rag with Tabor. Um, it's really, it's yeah, really it was... funny. It's hilarious. It's brilliant. Yeah. I and mean, he's the re- he puts in a great performance. So shout out to Harden as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I know we've we've kind of touched about a lot of the scenes, but it's so well shot. It's so well shot in the yeah. fact that, like, when the camera's on Ratchet, the figure of 
order you know with the camera still it's a lot of reaction shots of her where she's mm-hmm. just looking quite sternly but when the camera's on Nicholson's character this figure of chaos it's it's moving you know I know I was watching a thing today so I'll not claim it as my own it's something that's done purposely in the film the way that it's shot you know, the film the film's quite still at times you know and then as Nicholson's character starts to have an effect on those around him the camera starts to become quite jumpy and you see in the in the two votes the difference there's a stillness to the first First vote where he only gets one or yeah. two he only gets one or two votes and Christopher Lloyd's only the one as I said earlier on that agrees with him but later on when he gets the nine votes the camera is quite jumpy and all over the place so it's it's so well shot and I think you'll probably know this Gavin I think this this won the, the big five and I think it wasn't until yeah. was it Silence of the Lambs? Yeah um, Silence of the Lambs won it in 91 this yeah. this was the second movie to win it and mm-hmm. the first one was it happened one night. God knows how long ago that was. Like that was so. There's only been the, the three, and this was the second movie to to do it. And uh, <laughs> I think it deserved it. I still think Brad Dourif deserved the uh, supporting actor mm-hmm. as well. I, I can't remember who won mm-hmm. it that year. No, I can't remember, but I know he was up for it as well. No, it's it's just a superb film. I think we're all in agreement here. I think we could be in danger of talking about every little finite detail about <laughs> the film. But I think as I come back to that point, particularly Gav, when. You mentioned at the start the film means so much. I repeat that point. I think when you have a film that you love that much, you would happily talk about it in every single frame of that scene. So if you haven't seen it, it is well worth a watch. And I think with that, we shall move on from One Flew Over the Cookie's Nest to part three of the podcast with any other business. Okay, guys, so this is just a little quick end to the podcast. Any other business? Just generally, what have you been watching recently? I know, Victoria, we got you to review St. Francis for us for the website. It's been out already a couple of weeks, but I know it's screening at the QFT as part of its reopening. So I know you, like me, were very enthusiastic about that film. I I honestly absolutely adored it. I'm so pleased the QFT are showing it. Um, I think I gave it four star because, like, I mean, there's nothing groundbreaking in terms of technique, but story-wise, it was very refreshing. Like, you don't... It was, it was just very raw and normal, and it was very inclusive, and it was just... Especially as a girl, being able to see someone talk about periods and abortions and have it be a normal thing, have it not be, like, something that you can't talk about in front of boys. Mm-hmm. It was... It's so refreshing. Like, you don't... I think I mentioned in my review, it's the first time I've seen period blood on screen, which I realised wasn't true because I've seen Carrie. Obviously, that's a very different mm. setting. Very yeah, famous scene. Yeah. Very famous. Um, oh, no, I think it's a lovely wee film and I cried about five times. I, I love that in your review, you went full Northern Irish in just the opening start of your, the opening paragraph of your review and you just said it there as well. You just said it's a lovely wee film. It said, is, though. Oh. It's a lovely wee film. It is true. I mean, I, I absolutely adored it. I seen it a couple of weeks ago, probably a couple of months ago, interviewed the director and the film's writer and just loved the whole ethos and the whole idea behind it. I would recommend anybody watch it. I know you've mentioned the topic of abortion is there. I keep saying this anytime we talk about St. Francis, it is not a film about abortion. There is an abortion in the film. And as the director, as the writer Kelly O'Sullivan said, an abortion is an event in the film, but it's not the event in the film. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I would recommend if anybody, if you have the opportunity, I think it's sold out already on the Friday night at the QFT. It's definitely worth a shout. It's somewhere that will find an audience at the QFT, but will probably struggle to get mainstream appeal 
through yeah, yeah. the Omniplex, but I would definitely recommend it. Uh, Gav, what else have you been watching beyond uh, One Flew of the Cookie's Nest for the pod? Nothing super new, but uh, we talked about Shudder. That's okay. You don't have to watch anything yeah. new. You know, <laughs> we talked about Shudder. I've, I've, been, I've been catching up on some films on Shudder, but actually there's a, there's a film that is exclusive to Shudder that was only released maybe a month ago called Scare Package, and it's a horror anthology. So it's, you know, different segments. It's like five different segments with a wraparound story. And um, it's it, it was okay. Like, I'd maybe give it three out of five, mm-hmm. but it's super meta, like even more meta than scream or meta than anything more meta than oh, anything wow. you've probably ever seen before like it literally starts off with them saying we're in a horror movie and <laughs> sort of continues from that and each segment um kind of there's there's one segment which is quite serious and then the rest of the segments are are kind of over the top that the first segment's very over the top and then the wraparound story at the end kind of drags on a little bit but it's quite fun if you like cabin in the woods or just your meta horror. Um, I'd I'd say give this give this one a watch. Whilst you mentioned meta horror, does the film manage to pull that off? Because I've always discussed this. Anytime we talk about horror, being meta in horror is a really difficult thing to pull off, and you can look a bit arsy at times. You know, Wes Craven mm-hmm. did it with the Scream films. You know, even more so. I think even more. I would actually argue more successfully with Wes Craven's new Nightmare, which I think is so mm-hmm. overlooked and underappreciated. Yeah, yeah. But people have tried to replicate that and have looked a bit arsy. Although I do love Cabin in the Woods because yeah. it's a lot of fun. Does the film manage to pull that meta mentality off, or does it? Mm... Personally, I think it goes too far. Like, I mean, I just think it just goes way too far, and I'll, I'll not mention anything too too. Uh, Hopefully, it doesn't go like to Mel Brooks level of too far. <laughs> too far, like well, I'm thinking of Blazing Saddles. There's a mm. there's a couple of bits in it where it's just like. I just can't really believe they've done that. You know, they really do go far with it, um, especially the wraparound at the end. Um, but it is a, it's a fun movie. It's a comedy. Like, it's 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 supposed to be funny, I suppose. And, okay. you know, it's a good popcorn-type movie. If, you, if you've got a couple of horror fans in the house, you know, mm-hmm. grab your popcorn, sit down and watch it for two hours. I think it does go a wee bit too far. Um, but there's certain segments that kind of do bring it back. Um, and I did laugh at certain parts. Um, it does sort of play out a little bit like a kind of like a you know like an oscar segment mm-hmm. you know where you have you know at the start of the oscars where they used to have the segments where they take parts of films and mm-hmm. i don't know if they do that anymore but it kind of plays out like a really long prolonged version of that but for horror movies so okay. it's 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 pretty good it's decent i mean it's kind of low budget um it's been getting good reviews on shutter and obviously you know it was worth their while you know promoting it and producing it and stuff mm-hmm. so i'd give it a shout and give it a check out if you if you yeah. uh you like horror movies? I can't remember the name of the film, but I'm looking forward to watching. Is it the Zoom horror movie that just landed on yes. Shutter, where a seance goes wrong on Zoom? Yeah. You know, very ironic as we're sitting now yeah. on a Zoom call. So please, Gav, do not start the seance just <laughs> yet. But uh, no, I'm looking yeah. forward to giving that a watch. I was reading Empire's review, and Empire were quite enthusiastic about it, and I've heard good things. I think uh, our very own Joe McElroy, I think, has watched it and said it was a lot of fun. The only thing I've kind of been watching this week, I was watching uh, a couple of films. I went to see Stage Mother, as I said at the start of this pod. I thought it was fine. It's just not funny enough, and it's too sugary sweet for its own good. I love Jackie Weaver. You know, I'll pretty much watch her in anything. Lucy Liu's here, but... Uh, I think she's a little miscast in this, but the central premise is that we have uh, a southern choir master who 
has kind of seemingly disowned her son. He dies from an overdose while performing as a drag queen on stage in San Francisco. She goes to attend his funeral and she ends up that the bar has been left to her. And rather than say a wonder, she decides to put a bit of Southern charm to it and turn it round. It's it's a film that only wants to try and put a smile on your face and I have no problem with that whatsoever in the world that we're currently in. I just thought it just wasn't funny enough. That's my honest thing with Stage Mother. Uh, the other film I watched, I know I just put my review up today, was Life With Music with Patrick Stewart. I'll watch Patrick Stewart in pretty much anything. Here mm-hmm. we have him playing a pianist, who, and I'll say that again for anyone who thought I said that wrong, pianist. Uh, <laughs> He's a, a pianist who's struggling to return to the stage after several years of absence. He's suffering from stage fright and he meets a lovely Katie Holmes who's a journalist who wants to write a piece on him and through her she becomes his muse. I thought it was fine. It was perfectly watchable. Would I go to see it in the cinema? Probably not, if I'm blatantly honest. If I'm really honest, I, I didn't didn't find myself going, I needed to watch this at the cinema. But, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for Patrick Stewart. I grew up loving Star Trek The Next Generation. I'll watch him in pretty much anything. He's the best thing about this film. It is a bit kind of formulaic. It is a bit predictable. We've seen this type of stuff before, you know, talking about mental health with One Flew of the Cookie's Nest. There is strands in its DNA that deal with mental health, but... Uh, yeah, it's a perfectly serviceable. Would I rush out to buy it or rent it on a VOD platform? Probably not. But if the opportunity arose to to watch it either through a Netflix or uh, something that is a, a subscription-based VOD platform, or if, if you have Sky or something like that and it came on, I would say you'll, you'll not be too disappointed. It's perfectly watchable. Um, yeah, I, I liked it a lot. Um, that's kind of it. So uh, I think we shall bring things to a close. So thank you very much, Gav. No problem, anytime. Thank you very much, Victoria. Thank you. I look forward to not hearing about your international activities, uh, kind of what you've been getting up to as a secret agent. I look forward to not hearing anything about that in your double life as working in the joys of retail. Thank you for your time and thank you guys for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. If you really really want to be nice, leave us a nice review, particularly if you listen to us on iTunes because it really helps us. And if you really, really like us, don't forget you can support our Patreon account and all the details for that can be found on our website. But for now, on till next week, goodbye. This has been We need to talk about movies. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit banterflix.com. See you next time.